0: Blob Talk Radio
1: And we'll sit here for 34 seconds and wait on the Peach State Pandemonium. Here it goes.
2: Welcome to Peach State Pandemonium. Production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network, where we take you down memory lane for a look at professional wrestling the way it used to be, with conversations from those who paved the way. And now, the GWH Radio Network
1: presents Peach State Pandemonium. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Peach State Pandemonium. I'm Jay West. We're waiting on uh, Michael Norris uh, to join us. Bobby Simmons is with us. How are you doing, Bobby?
3: I'm good, Jay. How are you tonight, sir?
1: Well, I'm just trying to get the board up here and uh, seeing who's going on. I'm trying to get uh, Jerry on right now. He's called in, but I've hit the button, and it's just going round and round and round and round. Uh, so, if Jerry, if you're uh, listening. Oh, there we go. I've got Jerry on now. you there, Jerry? Yes, sir. Okay, good to hear from you. Missed you for a couple of weeks there. And I punched yes, you up, sir. and it was just it was just going around in a circle. I guess I don't know if that has anything to do with uh, how things have been going with you down there at the beach or not, how things have uh, been
4: down there the last couple of weeks. It's, it, it's been hot. It's been hot. It'll be hotter tomorrow. Huh? That's the weather forecast, ladies and gentlemen. 101 tomorrow. You're kidding. Tomorrow
3: you're kidding.
4: Yeah, that's not counting the heat index, so. Wow, that's unbelievable. Well, it's been
1: in the 90s here, you know. It's uh, we have a thermometer out on the side of the house that we use to uh, uh where we keep the uh, the dogs in the afternoon when the when the, you know, the, the shade comes in. And uh it's usually about 81 or 82 out there and we've got the water and everything else, but uh in the last couple of days it's it's been in the upper 80s. It's been uh, uh, tremendously uh tremendously hot here. Uh, Bobby, how was it out there, weather-wise, uh, on your trip?
3: Uh, it, it was stayed in the 80s most every day. It was uh, very pleasant. We had some we had some pretty bad rain on Saturday when we left Atlanta heading north. But other than that, we had great weather the whole week. Uh, 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 the thing that about, you know, and of course, I thought about Jerry the whole time. He talked about those trips he made in Oklahoma and Louisiana. Of course, that's the first time I'd ever been to the Midwest, and uh the thing that amazed me more than anything was how bad the wind blows out there because there's nothing to stop it. It blows. I mean, it's, it's just flat. I opened a car door at a gas station in Iowa and it, like, took the door off. I mean, it wow. was just amazing. And it never stops. I mean, it's all the time. It was just a, uh, it's, it's, a... If you've never been out there, it's hard to... You can't describe it to people. Uh, I mean, of all the stories I had heard... Uh, never in my life could I even imagine in my mind how flat it is, how much the wind blows, and just uh, how those miles just just click by, and you you just nothing changes.
4: <laughs> it does not change.
3: No, it doesn't. Well, was, Everything, you know.
4: I was talking
1: to uh, Charlie Smith today. He uh, he uh, he had actually called me two days ago, and somehow or another. I... Uh, missed it i i i told him i was must have been taking my afternoon old man nap uh but anyway he, uh, he i was asking him about the trip and he mentioned the fact that uh, things were uh particularly uh, around the mountain and a few other places that uh, things were extremely expensive out there
3: well it's funny one of the things that that, that caught my attention and me and Randy talked about it a lot was he, from from Sioux Falls, South Dakota to Rapid City, South Dakota is 333 miles. And the only the only time the scenery changes is when you cross the Mississippi River, or the Missouri River. Right. You cross the Missouri River about 100 miles out of Sioux Falls. And and it's just rest of the time it's just flat, there's nothing there. And you'll come up on this exit, there'll be a service station there and I had been warned you know, don't ever run out of gas out there. You know, make sure it's full. So we would never let it get below. If it got a little bit below a half tank, we would fill it up just to be safe because we know where we're going. Right. The gas out in the middle of nowhere was two dollars twelve cents a gallon, two dollars nineteen cents a gallon, which right. was you know not bad. We got into Rapid City right around our hotel. Gas was running two forty, 240, two forty five, and this is in a city. But out in the middle of nowhere, it's 209, 219, and, you know, somewhere anywhere in that range. And it just, uh, I thought, if I had that service station in the middle of nowhere, I'd be jacking people up. Yeah. Because they got no choice, but I, it's just, it was really odd. And, yeah, things were expensive. They, especially, I guess it's true anywhere. You you know, in the, uh, Mount Rushmore, like anything else, is a tourist trap, everything around it. Uh, the little town at the base of the mountain is Keystone, South Dakota. And it's nothing more than a Helen, Georgia, transplanted into into South Dakota. It's just, uh, right. you know, every store's got the same T-shirt, same knickknacks. It's just, yeah, but a uh, great trip. Uh, anybody that ever gets a chance to go out there and see that country and see Rushmore and the things around there, I would highly recommend it. It's, it was a great trip. We had a good time.
1: Uh, I talked to Mike yesterday, and hold on just a sec. I'm uh, actually calling Mike's number right now. Uh, I t- talked to him yesterday, and everything was uh, great for the show tonight. And uh, have you talked to him today? Bob?
3: I have not heard from him today. I, I uh, got the email from him, and said, you know, we're going to do the show, but I have not talked to him today.
1: Well, I'm going to give him one more ringy dingy here. To Hello, Mike. Are you uh, are you taking a nap? All righty. Okay, I uh, Mike was taking one of my old man naps, and, uh, and <laughs> I mean, I know this show is a show to snooze by, but uh, I'm taking a little bit of offense at that. Uh, so,
3: uh. <laughs> hey Jerry. Hello. Hey Jerry, it's Bobby. We were we left Atlanta last Saturday morning at ten o'clock. And when we got home Friday night, about nine o'clock Friday night, we had driven thirty nine hundred miles, and I thought to myself, "That's one week for Jerry
4: in that territory <laughs> out there." And uh,
3: I thought, "This is insane."
4: It, uh, <laughs> you didn't miss it much.
3: Oh God!
4: And it was every I mean, week.
3: Uh, that's what I'm saying. I just you know, and 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 again, and, and I'm not joking. You know, you nothing changes like in I, especially Iowa and South Dakota. Nothing changes. I mean, the scenery stays the same the whole trip. And it's just, uh, I thought, God, that's got to be, there has to be some long weeks.
2: Okay, ladies
1: and gentlemen, uh, are you there, the late Michael
2: Norris? I'm here. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I call myself just trying to catch a little uh, shut-eye. Yeah. Uh, went too far.
1: Okay, well, that's all so right. We're glad to glad to have you with us. Uh, while you're uh, catching a breath there, uh, we talked a lot about Ali last week, uh, but a uh, name I want to mention that uh, some of you guys might, might some of our listeners might be familiar with, uh, but a fellow named Kevin Ferguson, uh, who is a mixed martial artist, and he worked under the name Kimbo Slice. Uh, he yeah. died June the 6th. He was 42, uh, died of heart failure, the uh, report on him said there was no drug or uh, specific trauma but he was one of those guys that was a personality kind of guy he'd been a bouncer and uh uh, you know somebody found him and uh, he was on the first cbs network show for mixed martial arts back in 2008 and uh he kind of was one of the first guys that i ever watched in modern mixed martial arts And uh, he was kind of protected, you know, he was journeyman level, but he had that kind of personality to make people kind of want to watch him. And uh, so at any rate, uh, they took him as far as he could with that. Then he had to take some bigger fights, and, of course, they didn't go that well. But um, sad to hear about the uh, death of uh,
2: Kimbo Slice, a mixed martial artist. And then, of course, uh, it was either early this morning or yesterday, we lost uh, Gilberto Melendez otherwise known as Joe Madrid, Gene Madrid, Pepe Figueroa, and his best known name Gypsy Joe. Um, who uh worked uh was primarily known for working uh for many years in, in Tennessee, but he worked uh worked all over the place. I know he worked out in Calgary quite a bit, uh worked uh in uh West Virginia, worked in the Mobile Territory briefly. Um uh, it's all over the place but um uh, and most recently uh I think he actually wrestled in a match here four or five years ago. And uh but um the reports I'm seeing is saying he's only eighty two. Now he's been eighty two for at least twenty years. Wow. So I uh, you know, and I'm not trying so, to make light of the, of his right. passing but uh maybe uh maybe they should uh do some sort of autopsy and cut him open and count the rings and let him see how old he was because he was well, eighty two when I was in Japan with him.
4: <laughs>
3: yeah, Bo James told me one time that that uh, Paul Morton, before he passed away, said that Joe was older than he was, and Paul was ninety four, I think, when he passed away. Wow! So you know, I don't think uh, all, all not being funny. Uh, Bo says he didn't think that that Joe knew how old he was. You know, he really right. didn't. So he just picked an age and said, "This is how old I am." You yeah, know, there's a good chance Joe was Joe was a hundred or pretty darn close.
1: Wow, uh, I saw it on Facebook today with Bo James. He'd sent out a Facebook, uh, you know, blast and uh, he had a picture of Gypsy Joe there uh, discussing his death. You know, there have been so many Gypsy Joes
2: throughout the. the History of, of wrestling that so many people, no matter you can, can throw a result up somewhere and somebody will automatically think it was him, but he was uh, at least the fourth or fifth to use that name because the first that I know of was uh, Gypsy Joe Dorsetti, who was at uh, one time the world light heavyweight champion for the NWA in, uh, sometime in the 40s. And then there was a Gypsy Joe Gonzalez that worked the Boston area. There was a guy you guys are familiar with, and I'm familiar with, because he worked a lot in Mobile with Gypsy Joe Rosario. Um, yeah. And then and then uh, Melendez came along. But like I said, he was uh, long before that in the the '60s. He was was Joe Madrid in Mobile, and then he uh, he came a lot with Jam Madrid uh, when Jam was running. Um, in West Virginia, and he called himself Gene Madrid, and then he was one half of the. Uh, um, I'm trying to think what the tag team mass tag name was Frank Martinez, but he used the name Pepe Pigueroa.
3: The Dominoes, wasn't it?
2: No, it wasn't the Dominoes. That was that was Frankie Hester and. Uh, no, okay. Um. Lopez, Pepe Lopez.
1: Man, how do you come up with that stuff? I mean, unbelievable. Uh, you, I mean, you just pull that stuff right out of your head. That's.
2: It's just uh, I, who knows. You know, if I could earn a living with it, you know, it'd be be wonderful. Uh, oh, what were they called? The, the um, they were the blue something. What the blue demons? That was Frank Martinez and uh, Tamayo Soto. Um. But anyway. Uh, and then he became just a Joe, and uh, but I don't know that he ever worked anywhere under the name Gilberto Melendez or Gil Melendez or whatever. And, and they again, like his age, that's a question too. They're not even sure that that's what his real name was, but who knows? But what a colorful character he was, and worked a long, long time.
3: Well, I watched uh, him and another guy. It beat each other with chairs, sitting in their wheelchairs uh, at Scott's reunion last year or year before, whatever it was. Uh, it was rather entertaining, and it was also, uh, you know, you thought about uh, what other business could you have two guys in wheelchairs beating each other with chairs. I mean, it was. Uh,
1: yeah, and you wonder who would book the return match, right? Oh, you know, geez, so.
3: yeah, it's kind of nuts, <laughs> but.
1: Uh, oh man. Little research here since we talked about it last week. The Ringsider, Georgia's official wrestling weekly, volume 76, November number 24, 20, uh, 50 cents. Uh, Mark Lewin was on the cover with the spoiler, and the bottom line says the spoiler results in the Georgia Championship inside the champion, North American Heavyweight Champion Bill Watts, World Heavyweight Champion Terry Funk. Georgia heavyweight champion, the spoiler, and the Georgia tag team champions, Ted and Jerry Oates. wonder what happened to them. Anyway, uh, Freddie Miller's column on June 25th, the age-old question of the boxer versus the wrestler will be answered to a great extent when Andre the Giant battles New Jersey boxing champion Chuck Webner and world heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali versus champion Anoki. Freddie probably didn't even know his first name in a 15-rounder. In Atlanta, both these exciting events can be seen at the Omni on a giant closed-circuit TV screen, plus four professional matches will originate from Atlanta live at the Omni. And uh, the other matches that were there that night, single match, Mike Graham beat Tony Charles, uh, Bill Watts beat Dick Slater, uh, Mark Lewin defeated Pac Song, and Mantell, Drew with Skip Young, Dory Funk Jr. versus Jack Briscoe. I think that was a 30-minute draw. And then, of course, the two main events. So, anyway, it uh, did take place at the Omni.
3: It was at the Omni. I swore. I don't know. My memory's not as good as it used to be. What, what was well, the my,
2: date on that? Uh, this was
1: the uh, volume 76, number 24. And this was... Uh, it was the 24th issue, so it doesn't have a specific date, even though the card well, the card that night was June 11th. But uh, okay. it's uh, saying June 25th, of course, is the Yeah, date I was going to the... say, it
2: was either June 25th or 26th when the Ali Inoki came yeah. on. Depending 25th. on what side of the world you were on, it was the 26th in Japan and it was the 25th in the United States.
3: Well, another thing, I talked to you guys Thursday night, so I, I didn't get to tell you this last week. Uh, Friday morning, we got up, uh, or we were in Louisville, Kentucky. We spent the night there Thursday night, and uh, Friday morning we got up, and I went to the we went to the Louisville Slugger Bat Factory,
0: mm-hmm. which was
3: something I wanted to do as we headed south. And when we got through there, we were uh, <clears throat> we were leaving town, and as we got on the interstate to head south toward Nashville, uh, we saw this barrage of police lights, and I thought, "Oh God, they've had a horrible accident." Traffic was almost stopped, and I thought, well, this is really going to be, you know, we're going to be here for a while. And uh, all of a sudden, I noticed that the blue lights were moving toward us, and it, they were actually on the other side of the interstate. We uh, we we saw uh, Muhammad Ali's funeral procession. So, and then I noticed all the people standing on the bridges and on top of parking decks and buildings and so forth. So, uh, technically, me and Randy and Charlie attended uh, Muhammad Ali's funeral.
2: <laughs> I did too, sitting right here in my living
3: room watching
1: it on T V. Wow. I understand you bought several bats while you were there, Bobby.
3: I bought uh yeah, I bought uh bought some for Christmas gifts and uh uh got one for myself. I'd uh, I give Michael one for Christmas last year. I tried to I always I was trying to think of something Michael would appreciate, be something different and I knew what a baseball fan he was, so I'd ordered him one so I got me one and uh my grandson, my son-in-law, and my son won for Christmas, so I would say a uh, little, little something different.
2: Well, I'm proud of you for making it all the way back to uh, Atlanta without uh, beating Charlie Smith or one of them.
3: Well, it was good. There was there were several occasions. I, I, I come close to shooting him, but, you know, it was just a normal week. It was really good. We didn't scream at each other, and we were in pretty close quarters for a week, and me and him and Randy had a, we had a good time. We had a great trip, and uh, and uh, I'm glad we got to do it. Absolutely.
2: I am too. I'm jealous. That's one thing I've always wanted to do was go to the Black Hills. And, and uh, did you guys make it to see the uh, Crazy Horse Monument?
3: Yeah, we saw it. That's the only thing I feel like we got ripped off on.
2: It's a long way from being being uh, done, but at least you can get somewhat close to it.
3: Yeah. You, well. <laughs> It depends on what you consider close. They charge you $28 a car load to get in. Uh, you go down the Welcome Center, consists of about 25 booths set up where everybody's wanting to sell you something. And uh, if you want to go down and get close to the monument, you have to buy a ticket on top of the $28 you've already paid in to get on a hot, sweaty school bus, and they'll take you down there to the front of it where you can take a picture.
0: Wow, so, that's it?
3: that's it that's it it's it will never be finished i mean it's it's not going to be finished in our lifetime our children's lifetimes or probably our grandchildren's lifetimes if so ever the, the size and the, the 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 vision they have for doing this thing and the only thing there now is his face so it's uh and it's not complete but it's it, you know it gives you some idea that it's uh. And and they tell you when you get there, and you don't know this till you get there. It is not a national park. It's not funded by the state or the government. It's owned by the Indians, uh the tribe that's there, whatever they are. And uh that's why it costs so much to get in. And that's, that was the only thing we felt like we got ripped off on, but
4: Well, they should uh, rip people off for how they got ripped off. Yeah, I agree, and
3: they got they <laughs> got forty eight dollars from us. <laughs> well
2: they they're entitled to it brother if anybody is if I'm not mistaken, that's uh Oglala Sioux uh, territory it could but, be I'm uh, not sure,
3: but it was yeah, I do I got some pictures of it it was uh, it was uh uh you know it is interesting, and we but we did go see it and we went to Deadwood, and uh we saw that, so that was you know we went through Sturgis or the outskirts of Sturgis, which is a wide spot in the road, I guess, except for one week every year when it becomes the most populous city in South Dakota. Uh,
1: with with all of the uh, traveling here and there, uh, how many miles did you actually put on between leaving here and coming back?
3: Between the time I picked that van up on uh, on Friday and we tur- I returned it the following Sunday, we did 3,980-something miles.
2: Wow. Hey, that's just a week in the in the Oklahoma territory, isn't it? Dude? That's
3: what I was telling Jerry. I thought about it the whole week.
2: <laughs> I thought
3: about it in the whole week. The biggest day of traveling we had, we left Rapid City, South Dakota on Wednesday morning. Um uh, another another interesting thing about Rapid City, they call it the City of Presidents. And it's uh, it's of course it's the closest major city to uh brushmore, but downtown Rapid City on the street corner. They have a full-size statue of every president of the United States. Each corner has a statue. So uh, that was pretty interesting to drive around and see that. But the we we left there Saturday or Wednesday morning, and we checked into a hotel about a hundred miles or a little more south of St. Louis. Uh, around two o'clock in the morning, Thursday morning. So we're estimating we did a little over a thousand miles that day. So that was the that was the longest day of riding we had. Mm. Mm. Jerry, what was the furthest trip up into Iowa y'all made?
4: Well, we went all the way through Iowa into Wisconsin. Okay. Place called it was Patch Grove, Wisconsin. And when we pulled out of Patch Grove, Wisconsin on a Sunday night, it said Kansas City five hundred miles. Jeez.
1: Where did where did you work in Patch Grove, Wisconsin?
2: What building?
4: Yes. I have no earthly idea.
2: <laughs> Was that working for Geigel?
4: Yes. Lord, I didn't realize he, he went up to this He had drove back to, to uh made it back to Des Moines and he said he couldn't drive anymore. I said, Well give me the wheel. <laughs> he woke up a couple hours later and he looked over there, and I was doing a hundred miles an hour. He said, What are you doing? I said, I'm not letting that sun catch me coming up. It's never caught me coming up yet and it's not gonna catch me now. We got in we got into Kansas City at six o'clock in the morning. And then we had to go that after, that uh, Monday night to Wichita. We called up and said we need a driver. Mm. You
3: know, we were, you that know, was you my were, longest
4: ride ever from one town to the next.
3: You know, you're talking about running a hundred mile an hour now, and you know, in Atlanta, you see a guy running a hundred mile an hour and you think, well, that's insanity. Out there, it is so flat; hundred mile an hour is not too fast. No. The speed limit well, in South Dakota is eighty. Yeah, the speed limit in South Dakota is eighty, and we would we would we we ran ninety ninety five at times. I know because it's you know you cannot you just can't again. Jerry knows, but if you've ever been there, you know. But you can't comprehend how flat this place is. There are no hills. When we when Randy we were riding along middle of the night on, on Monday, night. we left Kansas City. Around noon on Monday, and we drove to Rapid City, which was about 700 miles. And, and Rapid City, we, it was probably 10 o'clock at night, 1030. And all of a sudden, Randy goes, what's all them lights? And I'm looking ahead, and I see all these lights. And we've seen nothing for 300 miles. And I said, well, it's got to be Rapid City. So I looked at the GPS that I had sitting on the dash. From the time we first saw those lights until we got to the city limits of Rapid City, was 30 miles. So, we actually saw it thirty miles before we got to it. That's how flat it is, and that's the Gods honest truth so a wow. hundred mile an hour a hundred mile an hour don't you know it it seems like a lot, but out there man it's you're just cruising along there's there's no curves in the road it's straight, and it's flat, and I can certainly understand that
2: now you see why all those guys would uh carry pistols and rifles and shoot at rabbits and stuff in the middle of the night. Or something to do to keep' them awake
3: i took the I took a picture of a farmhouse out in the middle of whatever they're growing there and I, t- I told Randy, I said, You know I've heard about this place my whole life, but I never thought I'd see it. I've actually witnessed the middle of nowhere <laughs> these people i mean they live there they, I, you know, the thing that I that I questioned, I said, where do these people go to the grocery store?
0: Right. See any it's drones amazing. come in?
3: I mean, there's no there's no roads. It's just, you can't see roads. You don't, and there's nothing around.
1: Oh. I would imagine it's a major trip, uh, you know, once or twice a month, and uh, it's not just like. Going down to Seven Eleven to pick up whatever you need for the night.
2: No, 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 not at all. Yeah, I would have been fascinated. I would, have, I would have imagined Bonnie and Clyde running through Iowa, you know, trying to get away from the from the police on all that flat, flat area. Well,
3: another, I'll tell you another interesting thing. And then we kept noticing as we went across South Dakota, we kept noticing every. I don't know, maybe 25, 30, 40 miles, you would come up on a sign It would say, Interstate closed if flashing. And when you would go by that exit, they would have these huge arms like in a railroad crossing Mm -hmm. uh, with flashing lights that you would see there. So you knew if they closed it, those would come down. So I asked the lady at the hotel in Rapid City, I said, why, what's the deal? And she said, well, She said, it's not the amount of snow we get in the winter. She said, it's the fact the wind blows so strong. She said, if we get one inch or two inches of snow, she said, we have a whiteout. There are no guardrails on the interstate because it's so flat. You can drive right off the interstate into somebody's field, and, and, you know, you just – I know it. She said, when when it whites out, she said, you don't know if you're on the road or off the road. And she said, it's not uncommon during the winter to have five or six tractor trailers they get blown over by the wind so she said when it gets like that they shut the interstate down i can't imagine if they shut that interstate down where you would wind up if you had to get off and try to get around or maneuver around if the interstate's that bad how in the world would you maneuver on some of them roads
1: unbelievable
3: Jerry did y'all ever have any I mean I know you were out there some in the winter did you guys ever have any trouble with a snow like that?
4: Mmm. I mean, a, a lot of snow, but you know, not not the winds like that. Okay. But A lot of snow. I mean, they just I mean, you just couldn't believe the snow. But those interstates, you know, they they keep trucking, you know. Well what happens? They pack that they pack that snow down and comes ice, and then that's 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 the danger part there.
1: No.
2: Oh. Yeah, can you imagine the guys that had to work the Calgary territory? I don't see how they did that. So this is what you do. You you can only go this go to run this one town in uh in in the winter because that's the only time the the lake is frozen enough so that you can drive over. Summertime, you know, you can't drive over the lake. I can't imagine that. Well, be uh, one nothing. shot I wouldn't make.
0: <laughs> uh-huh.
2: yeah, it's, it don't
4: get that cold for me to do something like that oh. I right,
3: remember Doug John Walker Smith. I remember John Walker telling me in Calgary When they would work that territory He said they would pile snow up Or you would run into a snowbank He said he, he has actually taken his car And just hit a snowbank And drove through it Not knowing what was on the other side Because it was the God. only way to go God. And he said also he's caught himself out He told me he said he would catch himself off the road out in a field but it all looked the same because of the snow that's why i live in georgia
1: that's uh when you would have to really think about uh decision about your career i would think about uh you know in situations like that oh uh, uh speaking of john walker anything new on his condition bobby
3: have not heard anything else have not heard anything else and that's I've been a little remiss about calling Robert his son, and I need to do that. But I have not heard anything yet. I'm assuming no news is good news. Right.
2: Well, all right. Yeah, that's good. I'm hoping so too, because I know he's had a he's had a couple of scares there. Um, this last go round was was an aneurysm, wasn't it, Bobby?
3: Yeah, that was the second one.
2: Yeah, that wasn't he, that wasn't what he had when he was in Charlotte?
3: Yeah, well, it was a heart attack, but they found an aneurysm there as well, so yeah, that was the second one. And speaking of Charlotte, for, for some of you guys that may know her, uh, Emily Miller passed away last week. Um, I know that name may not mean nothing to a lot of people, but for those of us that ever met her, she, Emily and her friend Patsy were uh, were mainstays around the Charlotte area working the independent shows, and they sold tickets to... Uh, they would, uh, even back in the day around Charlotte, they would they would uh, offer rides and carry the guys to different places and do things. Uh, they received the Friendship Award at Caulfield Island this year, and Emily passed away after a bout with cancer last week, and I uh, just wanted to mention her and, and uh, condolences to the family if anybody happens to be listed.
1: Absolutely. Sorry to hear
3: that.
2: Well, somebody I uh, I can't remember who said it to me or if I read it somewhere that she was married to Wahoo at one time. Uh,
3: I don't think she was married to Wahoo, but she was with Wahoo a lot. Let's just okay. put it that way. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: she she carried the issue Possibly yes. <laughs> Might have went to the PX and bought it. You know who knows. <laughs> hmm.
2: Well, since right, we
1: Mike, had abbrevi- up to uh, go yeah, to yeah. we, we during- had
2: an abbreviated show last week, and uh, and uh, I wanted to hold off on this until uh, Jerry was with us and Bobby was was with us a little more. We're gonna, I'm kind of gonna. Last week we were gonna look at, at brother tag teams that were made up of, of legitimate brothers, and I know that uh, that gimmick is, is was very prominent in the wrestling business during our era of. Of brothers who uh, were no more related than uh, dogs were to cats. But uh, surprisingly, when I went and started researching, I found a lot more, came up with a lot more actual brother teams than I realized they were. Um, but uh, And then I wanted to talk about uh, even rare father and sons, and then I thought, well, let's just talk about families in general because there there are a lot of, of uh, families, especially back in, in our day. Well, there's a lot of them now, too. There's a lot of third and fourth generation uh, that are, are in the business today, but very few at the same time. But back in our our day and, and even before that, it was pretty prominent to have fathers and sons and multi-brothers uh, and uncles and everything else. So I just wanted to look at uh, wrestling families in general and uh, those that uh, were kind of dominant and, and, you know, kind of had dynasties going through through the business. And, uh, and this is just a list of uh, the uh, the brothers that I, I thought of, and I'm sure even now with my list I'm leaving some off, but uh, Chris and John Tolos, uh, Doc and Mike Gallagher, whose real names were John and George Gallagher, uh, Doc was John Gallagher, and, and uh, Mike's name was actually George Gallagher. Ben and Mike Sharp, and uh, they were one of the cases where they started out Legitimate Brothers, and then they added a, uh, after they were no longer a team, Mike teamed with an Ed Sharp, who was, um, <coughs> Ed, uh, Baraghioli was his real name, And a similar situation with the uh, Miller brothers. They started out as a kayfabe team with uh, Bill and Ed Miller, Ed being Ed Albers, and then uh, Danny came along. And so it was Bill and Danny who were legit brothers. And same situation, Jackie and Donnie Fargo. They were not really related, but then Jackie spent a lot of time teaming with his true brother, Sonny Fargo. Uh... Carl and Eric von Brauner, because most people think of Carl and, and Kurt von Brauner, and they weren't really brothers. But after Kurt uh, Jimmy Brauner left the team, Carl von Brauner, who was uh, Doug Donovan, Donovan, teamed with his brother Red Donovan, and uh, who was became Eric von Brauner. Uh, Jesse and Johnny James, they were real brothers. George and Sandy Scott, Al and, T- Al and Tiny Mills. Mad Dog and Butcher Vashon, Jack and Jerry Briscoe, Dory Jr. and Terry Funk, Nick and Jerry Kozak, Manny and Roberto Soto, Rick and Robert Gibson, uh, one version of the Infernos, which was uh, Rocky and Curtis Smith, uh, Ron and Robert Fuller, Raul and Carlos Mata, Alpha and Sika Yee, Buzz and Brett Sawyer, Scott and Bill Irwin, and a couple of prelim guys named Jerry and Ted Oates. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> But like I said, I'm sure I'm leaving off probably a half, another half dozen that were le- legitimate brothers that uh, I didn't list. And, of course, there were some that were multi-brothers, like the Fields brothers. There were three of them. Uh, there uh, were various uh, Von Eriks.
1: Right. The Mascaris and his brothers, Dos Caras. Yeah, Dos Caras and
2: El Cicadelico. Uh, I didn't even have them. I'd totally forgotten about them. Torres uh, brothers.
3: How about the Batten twins? Were they brothers what was or was that a is, gimmick? There were
2: three sets of twins, uh the McGuire twins, the Kelly twins, the Batten twins. And uh evidently there was a there were uh Smith twins in uh in Canada. I don't know what their real names were. They were called Hurricane and Cyclone Smith and, and I I couldn't find enough information on them to find out if they were really really related or really twins, so I don't I don't know. Well, my favorite brother tag team was the McGuire Twins. Yeah.
4: (laughs) 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 Can you imagine if
2: they'd have had a third one of them?
1: Did uh, Randy Savage and Lenny Poffo ever team together?
2: Uh, Yes. Yes. In fact, they teamed together in Mobile uh, and uh, got fired together in Mobile. But that's... But that's that's another. Uh, I, there again, uh, Randy and and Angelo never teamed, but Lanny and Angelo did in Detroit, and that's uh, another one of the family things. And of the families, you've got the the Ducex, the Zaharias family, uh, the Welch Fields family, uh, the Beersions ba- 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 out of Canada. They were four you of them. the Armstrongs. Uh, the Armstrongs are on my list. Uh, the Lewins, there were three three Lewin brothers and a brother-in-law and Danny McShane. Uh, the three Torres brothers. Uh, the Cormier family uh, out of uh, New Brunswick, which was uh, Rudy and Terry Kaye and uh, the Beast and uh, Leo Burke. Did you have work at that end of Canada, Jerry, at all?
4: No, no, I wanted to. I don't know why we didn't go up there. We we had such great matches with them in Kansas City. But, you know, they, they could work. They could work.
1: Jerry, did you, uh, work. did you consider it just part of the business or did it ever bother you about these uh, pretend brother tag teams that would, uh, you know, do their bits and they would talk about their family backgrounds and their poor brother being hurt and all this stuff? Or
4: did you, you know, did... Did, did that bother you? No, that you or did never you bothered you just... me. No, uh, that didn't bother me. The only thing that bothered me was the Bavarian brothers, or whatever they were. The Bavarian, the Bavarian boys? Yes.
2: Where would you have ever crossed? I didn't realize they were around long enough for you to have them paths with them. Huh?
4: No, I, I just saw matches.
2: Oh, yeah. I've
4: seen tapes of them. That's what the worst thing I've That ever was seen. that
2: was Rudy Mil- Miller and Harry Wenzel. Yep,
4: they were
2: they, didn't they were true, long, did they? true Bavarians or from Germany, and uh, they they uh, wore wrestled in Lederhosen and and all that stuff, and they were, you know, <coughs> they were just a quick gimmick basically. They had a
3: short run here in Georgia. I remember seeing them as a kid.
2: When when was that, uh, Bobby? That would have been in the 60s. Yeah, mid-60s. They passed through Mobile. Uh, they were they were pretty popular on the... Uh, I don't know if it was still the Dumont Network, but in the 60s, the, the wrestling from Chicago, they were still getting national play. I've uh, got, I got video in the 60s. of them. Whoever put them on TV will be shot. <laughs> one, one match I've got with them is the two of them against... Uh, Skull Murphy and Brute Bernard. I know, that was a classic. And they just gobbled them. <laughs> they just guzzled them up, and then they tried to let them interview, and then they, the guy couldn't no, speak when, English well when enough really to even do an south. interview. It really went south there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but continue on with the, the families. you got the Hart family out of Calgary. Uh, the Correct. Youngbloods or Romeros should take your pick. They worked under both names, the Guerreros and the Garibaldis. And there again, I'm sure I'm, I'm leaving, leaving off somebody here, but,
1: uh, you mention the Steiners.
2: No, I did not think of the, the Steiners. I didn't really get into the more modern era. Um, I don't, I didn't, I, after after 1984, I really didn't keep up with, with the wrestling that much. But, uh, there's
1: just, uh, there's just names that still pop up, you know, the Skyders, they're, they're,
2: uh,
1: wrestling at the Independent Circuit, you know, they, they, yeah,
2: and I, I didn't put the Wyndhams on here, and I, or, or other, either, the most, <laughs> of course, it was Blackjack and then, uh, Barry, and he, they teamed a lot, and then, uh, Wyndham's uh, younger son, uh, Kendall Wyndham, came along, and he and Barry uh-huh. teamed. Uh, father and son, you've got, you know, like Leo and Gino Garibaldi, Mike and Eddie Graham, uh, a, a name that Jerry I know is familiar with, but a lot of people have never heard of, Frank and Jim Marconi. Yeah.
1: Um, did you mention the fillers?
2: Yeah, yeah, I did mention okay. Ron and Robert, and of course, their dad, Buddy. Uh, right. And then Bob Orden and Bob Orden Jr. Yes, the and brother, they, brother, There was uh, Barry Orden. So no, Jackie
4: and who? Uh,
2: Jackie. What was Jackie's brother's name? Jackie Wells. Oh, Roy Lee. Roy Lee. Roy Lee. Roy Lee. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, their dad, Lester. Uh, well, I you know out of out of uh, so many people, want to look at the the Samoans as being the largest family, and and. Uh, the Annawies have had a lot of people come through the business and are, that are still in the business, but a lot of people lump people like Peter Mavia and, and Jimmy Snooker and Coco Samoa and all they weren't related to the Annawites. I mean they you know they called themselves related but they weren't truly related. Um of course Mavia had uh was his daughter was married to Rocky Johnson and, and Dwayne Johnson the Rock is their son. But um I, I, to me, it's still going to be hard-pressed to find any, anybody that, that uh, touched the wrestling business more than the Welch Fuller Fields Golden Group. I mean, I, I counted 27 people in that that family involved in the wrestling business in one capacity or another. And for decades, I mean, just you think of all the, the promotions that they were involved in, starting with Roy Welch back in the 40s. Through you know the Fullers into the late '80s. Um, did you and Jerry uh, Ted ever work with any other legitimate brother teams, Jerry?
4: Uh, the Cormiers, who we right they were the Martin yeah, brothers, that's right. Kansas City uh, brothers. That was what
2: and Terry Terry and Bobby K out Tommy there, R- right? Gary and Tommy Martin. Tommy Martin, that's right. They use the name Martin out there, not K. They use K in too. the Carolinas. Other brothers. And we
4: wrestled the Briscoe brothers. What uh, was
2: that like? I bet that was a fun match. Oh,
4: well, we had a good match with them. We wrestled at St. Pete. Wrestling them down there. Uh, who else did we? That's a good question.
2: I, I I really don't know. I don't think you would cross paths with the Infernos when it was Rocky and Curtis because they were the they were the Infernos in from sixty off and on from sixty eight or late sixty eight and through seventy one I think. And then Rocky oh, kind of we'll went into semi retirement. Yeah. No, that's yes. I, I can't think of anybody else. I really can't, because I don't think you guys ever were in a territory with uh, the Islanders, were you? Af and seeker. No. Because uh-huh. I know they came. What with – with, did they come through Georgia, Bobby? Eighty-two.
3: But
2: they had many in Who Kays is this now? f and Sika in Hawaii, the, the Islanders. They were the here they were, they were here known. working
3: for Ann in 73.
2: That's right. That's right. You know, a lot of people think of them as the Samoans, and that is the name that they ended up with, but they started as the Islanders. Right. Yeah, that's um, what they
3: were using here.
2: And then there was the, the original Samoans were uh, T.O. Taylor and... Uh, Reno you know, Tafuli, and then after they split up, uh, Tio's son, and that's another father and son team. Uh, Tio's son Tapu Taylor. They became the Samoans in '74 because they came through Mobile, and uh, they went. They did a lot of gimmicks. Of that. They were the Samoans. They were the Manchurians. They were the uh, I don't know how many. They changed nationalities and, and gimmicks so much.
1: You know, that's that's interesting when you think about the WWE now. Vince McMahon uh, promotes his family as such, but really and truly, you know, controlling everything that he does, I don't think brother or family teams are something, you know, they would obviously be not real, but I don't even think he does that anymore, does he does he? I mean, you know uh promote tag teams or anything as brothers whether they are or family members uh whether they are or are I think the only not.
2: ones that they've got up there and they are legitimately brothers of the uh I want to say they're called the Usos. And I think they're related to the the Samoans somewhere in there, the the in there somewhere. Um no, well, uh, now one I got those I did, two girls up there that are twins. The,
3: the one the of them married twins, Daniel yeah. Brown. I'm not even sure they're still there, but no, I think they both
2: left. Because, well, one of them uh, was married to uh, Daniel Bryan. Daniel Bryan. And the other one is with John Cena, I think. I don't, yeah. I, I don't know. But um, I just I just finished reading a book that I that I highly recommend. It's by uh, Tim Hornbaker, who. Uh, has done, uh, did a book uh, a few years ago on the uh, the formation and the, uh, the the back dealings of the the NWA, how it came about, and a lot of how a lot of things that went on over the the course of uh, the National Wrestling Alliance when it was still truly the National Wrestling Alliance. But he he put out a book uh, a year or so ago that I just just finished reading called uh, Capital Revolution. And it is about how the uh, promotion that is now the WWE came about, going all the way back through McMahon's uh, grandfather, Jess McMahon, uh, how he got involved in wrestling after being involved in boxing, and all the different uh, maneuvers of them in and out of the National Wrestling Alliance, and, and all that up through the uh, the Northeast, and it. Uh, it doesn't go into the current generation. It, it pretty much ends with uh Bob Backlund losing the, the title to the Iron Sheik, and then Hogan getting it and that's pretty much where it stops. But if you're interested in in the ins and outs and the backstabbings and not really backstabbing, that's not not a proper but but the the, the things that, the the nuts and bolts of how the wrestling business worked from the early part of the twentieth century through the uh end of the twentieth century, I highly recommend that book. In fact I I'm, I'm gonna try and reach out to Tim and see if I can get him to uh to do our shows. Not only to talk about the two books that he did uh he's done so far about wrestling, but he's also got two books out now that are that I, I wanna get uh one's on Shoeless Joe Jackson, the other's on Ty Cobb. And if he does Anything like the research that he's put into the, uh, puts into those, what he put into his wrestling books, they're going to be phenomenal as well. But uh, I highly, highly recommend either one of, uh, or any of Tim Hornbaker's books. He's a, he's a gifted writer.
1: Where did you, uh, how did you procure that, that, uh, book, Mike?
2: I got it off of, uh, got it from Amazon. Okay. Yeah. And I had had, uh, his his first his NWA book several years ago. And of course that was one of the, the things that I lost when when I lost so much in the uh the house fire but uh, I rebought it and uh while I was at it I went ahead and got uh um the uh capital book as well. And another book I just finished reading too. I've been reading a lot lately. Um, I just read uh Dick the Bruiser's uh, biography and it's it's a very good book as well, and a lot of it, a lot of background there. Because Bruiser was involved with, uh, you know, his own promotion and all that, and uh, he was an interesting guy. Did you ever work for him, Jerry? No, <coughs> I was around him, but I, I never worked for him.
1: Anything uh, surprising? Anything surprising in the book, Mike, that you really stuck out?
2: Um just basically uh what was interesting about him is the uh the push he got initially he never did jobs you know he was one of those one of those rare guys that never never got into the business doing jobs or working out law or anything like that he he pretty much debuted on top but that was because he was semi-well known because of his college football days and uh his uh, four years with the Green Bay Packers. Of course, he never played full-time in college or with the Packers, not not like it was built up, you know, during his pro career. Um, but uh, the thing I found the most interesting about that was he and he and Wilbur Snyder on that Indianapolis territory, which they bought from uh, Johnny Doyle and Jim Barnett, um, but they ran it for – uh, nearly 20 years and you couldn't find two more opposite people but they it it just clicked with them you know working together as, as promoters but uh bruiser led a very very interesting life and uh you know was an was an interesting guy and that's another book i highly recommend that you can get that through scott teal's uh crowbar press uh, Scott edited the book and I'm sorry I don't have the the, uh, the book in front of me to tell you what the, the author's name is but I highly recommend it as well, well come on guys you guys got to have some sort of information on some, some teams you guys were in the business a lot more than I was I, I just, it, the only the only I father
3: see. son thing that I don't know if you mentioned or not would have been Bernie and Greg Gar. I don't
2: Bernie know Gagne really Gagne. Like. I didn't mention Bull and Fred Curry
3: um, you know many. it's amazing you're talking about all the guys that worked together that were not related, yes, and some of them and some of them didn't look anything alike. I mean, you know it was like really, but uh, two guys that were not related in any way, shape or form. But looked so much alike, it was just uncanny with Rocket and Sputnik Monroe.
2: Yeah, exactly. You know. And and actually, in going even further back, Sputnik did have a real brother in the business. Uh, I don't know if he ever – did Jet ever work in, in Georgia? Jet was
3: his manager when he first came here.
2: Yeah. Of course, that was Sputnik's brother, Gary. Um, and he also managed uh, – as a team and solo, the first Rocket Monroe, which was uh, Bill Fletcher, and then, uh, but yeah, you're right. Rocket, the Mari the High, the, the guy we all know as Rocket, Rocket and Spuds look so much alike. In fact, oh. that's that's how how they uh, they got together. Um, Rocket was working, uh, had broken into the business in Memphis, which is where he was from. And he was working under the name of Rocky Montez. Mm -hmm. And uh, he happened to be working in Jonesboro, Arkansas. And the promoter in Jonesboro, Arkansas, um, our former promoter of Jonesboro, Arkansas, was Speedy Hatfield, who was Lee Fields and the Fields brothers' dad. He happened to be in town. I don't know if he was passing through up there or what it was, but he knew Lee was looking for somebody in Mobile, and he said, uh, we need a heel down in, in Mobile. Would you be interested in going? So Rocket said, yeah. He went down there, and the first person he met was Rocky McGuire, who took one look at him and said, you look so much like Sputnik Monroe. I'm going to make you a Monroe brother. Well, he spent, uh, this was in 1966, and there was already a Rocket Monroe who had been through there in 63, which was Bill Fletcher. So they dubbed uh Rocket who we knew as now know as Rocket T and T Monroe. And uh so he was working in mobile and Sputsy got wind of it, who was he was down in Tampa. So he called Rocket McGuire and said, Who's this puke up there working using my name? You know. I didn't tell him he could do that and uh tell him if he don't quit using my name I'm gonna i I'm gonna come up there and, and do something about it. So Rocket our Rocket told Rocky, he said well tell him to uh if he thinks he wants to, tell him to come on up here and do it. So uh how it worked out was uh Sputnik got him down into Tampa, renamed him Rocket and uh that was in six early sixty seven and next thing you know they got Saul Weingroff and they're the world tag team champion and they were they were off and on uh, from then on but I rocket spent more time with flash than he ever did with Sputnik. uh
1: interesting uh, bobby was talking uh, last week about uh, the two girls that they had gotten to uh, uh to go into the ring with them uh here in atlanta uh and uh in looking at uh some of the uh Ringsiders, in order to come up with that information on the Ali, Loki match, uh, I I looked at the back of one, and it had a picture of uh, Rocket and uh, and uh, Sputnik, and uh, it had a picture of the two girls with them, full full page back cover.
3: They got him more heat with his wife than anything he ever did. He told me. <laughs> and he didn't know nothing about it. The first night he got hooked up with them girls was in at Atlanta. They come yep. out of the dressing room, and they were standing off to the side, and Sputzy motioned for him to come on. And Rocket said, what's this? He said, don't worry about it, kid. Let's go. And they went to the ring. He said that was his first introduction to the two girls. <clears throat> yeah, Rocket told a lot of interesting stories. And I know we're kind of getting off subject here with brothers, but he told a lot of stories. He said, Sputnik, when Sputnik was, was, was sober, he said he was the nicest guy in the world. He said he was very knowledgeable of the business. He had a lot of good ideas. He said, but when he'd get a little bit of that booze in him, he said he was just, you couldn't deal with him. And he said there was many nights he'd stop the car and get out of the car and threaten to kill right. him. want him to get out where he could beat him up or they'd beat each other up. But he said, you know, of course, you know, Sputnik never would get out of the car. But just... uh uh I don't know, very interesting character. I remember as a kid, I was scared to death of him. Uh but uh, uh just uh, there's a guy that could uh if he could uh, as we've talked about the booze and the drugs and whatever, it wasn't the drugs with him, it was the booze. That right. guy could have been a millionaire. He could have been well, a millionaire I, and he
2: just you know
1: I, I found out in uh, you know, uh early early life how how just a little alcohol can completely change somebody's personality. Uh, I, I was really shocked at that, you know, because I'd been around uh, people that drank. But when I was in the Army, there was a couple of mechanics. Uh, I'd call them hillbillies, you know. They were they were really nice guys. And one of them was from Ohio and the other one was from Tennessee, and, and they worked in the water pool together. And I made the mistake of going out with these guys one night. I was, uh, you know, I'd been been in the Army much less time than them, and one of the guys had a car. And uh, at any rate, they stopped at the liquor store and uh, got, uh, you know, 24 pack. They did it off base. They weren't going to go to the, uh, to the, uh, you know, to the Class Six store. And they started drinking. And within 30 minutes, these were the two of the wildest men I have ever seen in my life. I never, I didn't know if I was going to get back on post that night. Uh, but I, I, that was my. You know, breakthrough of, of knowing how alcohol can can affect somebody, and just a little bit. And these guys weren't alcoholics because you know you you couldn't go day in and day out doing the work we were doing and drink. So it was uh, you know it was a Friday night thing when they could get off post. But uh, don't ever believe somebody when they say, oh, I just just want to you know one drink here and everything's going to be all right. Because I mean, some people can drink all day, but other people one drink and their brain just goes
2: haywire. It just shows you how my brain works. While you were telling that story, I was thinking liquor store, Homer <laughs> Odell, and that led me to uh, the, the the Hamilton brothers, Joe and and uh, Larry Hamilton. Very I, good. I didn't have them on my list either.
3: Yeah, we went through St. Joe, Missouri, going north to Kansas City, and I, as a matter of fact, I reached out to Michael. I was trying to find out if uh, if Larry Hamilton was buried there. I was going to go by and pay my respects, but we couldn't find anything, so. Not sure uh, what was what the deal was with him, or where he's buried, or I, I think
4: he is, Bobby. I, I'm pretty sure he is.
3: Well, we try. I was trying to find something online. Thought somebody might have posted where he was or what he was. I was going to go by. We were since we were right there, but uh, couldn't find anything out. So
2: that's right. They were oh. from St. Joe's. wasn't Isn't that where Mike George was from too, Jerry? St. Joe. Yes. But yes, she's from St. Now you think of all the guys that came out of that that Missouri territory, going as far back as Orville Brown, and and there's another father-son. Too. I don't know if if his Orville Brown's son Richard uh, was was in the business early enough for them to team, or if he came along after Orville had to retire because of his his car accident.
4: Yeah, a lot of people did come through there. A lot of
2: people. Were, uh, Sonny Myers, I think, was from St. Sonny Joe. Myers was from St. Joseph. You're right. Um, Ronnie Etchison, was, was he from? Where was Ronnie Etchison from? He Edgison, was from some. He was, I, I, you know,
4: I don't know if he was from St. Joe or not. Well, they they said uh, I never saw Sonny work, but I heard he was a fantastic worker heard everybody Jody, say a quote. Jody Quarty Hamilton quote.
3: told me one time he's the best he'd ever
4: seen. I, I, I heard that. I heard he was phenomenal. I, I'm sorry I never got to see him. But I knew him. He, he was a good guy. He was a very nice guy. He wound up being the sheriff up there in St. Joe.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that's that's interesting, too, and things that I've read of how many guys that uh, were in the wrestling business that after they retired went into some form of working for a sheriff's office or uh, something of that nature working in law
2: enforcement? Yeah, they most of them you ended up some sort of jailer. I know Saul Weingroff did. Don Carson did. Don, Don Carson was a deputy sheriff in uh, Cleveland, Tennessee, which is where he was from originally. Um, uh, Tarzan Baxter was a jailer and. uh Houston County, Alabama, for forever and ever, even even during his active career as the, as the pro. That's why he wore a mask, because he was a deputy sheriff. Um, our buddy Smitty was a jailer. Absolutely. I was, was going to
3: say, hang on to your seats. Charlie Smith was a deputy sheriff. Actually
2: let him tow the gun. Oh, that's scary. Uh, I'm trying to think I know Dick Dunn ran for uh tried to get elected sheriff in uh uh whatever county Lowry, is in, but uh, he didn't get get elected. Uh Gene Anderson was a um was a deputy sheriff. You're as kidding, was uh Johnny Weaver, I think. Yeah, I know Weaver was. And I'm pretty sure J I I'm pretty sure that uh Gene Anderson was involved with uh with the chairs department and some, some sort of thing. But you're right, Jay. That's that's amazing. Hmm. The ones who didn't get into the the law enforcement business uh, became uh, traveling evangelists.
1: <laughs> um, it wasn't much difference in the business. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I can name a half a dozen guys right now from the old days. It, it Buddy Hanna, uh, John Paul Hennig, uh, gorgeous George Grant. Yep. Who else was it? One of the nature boys. One of Pfeffer's knockoffs. I can't think of what his name is now. But he he became an evangelist. A uh, guy by the name of Bud Clardy, who was a referee in Mobile for a hundred years, starting in the fifties, he became a uh, tent preacher. Just, you just go from one work to another, I guess.
1: Right. Just, you know, maybe go to the carnival in between there, you know, maybe.
2: But it amazed me when i got when I went to work for the circus how many working for the Cole brothers Circus that were from the wrestling business and uh, Ronnie West had them lined up trying to wanting to <laughs> the circus to hire them he, I, I bet he got three phone calls a week from guys from the business or used to be in the business that wanted a job with the circus <laughs> is the circus still shut down, Mike. Uh well uh, Mr. Pugh, who was the owner of the circus has leased it to a, another company that owns four or five other circuses and they were supposed to go back they're supposed to hit uh open on the 22nd in um Valdosta uh when but uh now they're new website, doesn't have any dates on it at all, so I don't know what's going on with them. Um, They had had dates up through through the end of June, all up uh, pretty much the route that we used to run, starting in uh, uh, Valdosta going up into the Carolinas, but uh, those dates are no longer there, so I don't know if something fell through on it or, or what the deal is, but but uh, the owner was going out as the general manager, but they didn't hire anybody else from the circus that they used to work for. They didn't keep anybody that was with Cole Brothers. Now, that's as far as the uh, the uh, non-performance staff. I don't know about the performers. I would imagine the problems they had paying people towards the end of last year, they uh, were going to be hard-pressed to get any performers back that had worked for them prior to that. But on their website, they are advertising some group that uh, I'd never heard of, but they, evidently they won uh, America's Got Talent or something like that, some sort of tumbling group. But if they're going out on the road and that's all they've got, they're not going to draw very much.
4: Well, I'll be the cannon man. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: they've still got the cannon. I guess they're leasing it from Mr. Bale because he's not with them. Uh he was their vice president of operations and he owned the uh the cannon and the uh motorcycle globe and, and they're advertising that. Now whether or not uh if they're leasing it or if he sold the, the stuff to them or, or what the deal is, I don't know. Was the net go with the cannon? Uh yeah, I'm assuming so, yeah. Okay, so, how did all that cannon How did that cannon
1: really work to
4: shoot those guys out of
2: it? It was hydraulics.
4: Okay. I don't know um, if I need to bring my own net or what.
2: <laughs> uh, they gonna? I told you what they're going to You're you going to get transferred to Disney World, and you're going to be on alligator patrol down there.
4: Jeez, <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> oh,
2: gee whiz. my gosh. Uh,
1: that's, that's terrible.
2: Yeah, that's just not one place. Because, you, you know, I'm sure you guys have all been to Disney World. When you go to Disney World, you, you see stuff that you don't even think is real. You know, yep. you just think it's just part of the the, the act and everything, but... Uh, it's
1: hard to
4: tell.
2: Well, that's like the mother that let the little baby get away with the gorilla.
4: Yeah. You know, they bring the gorilla out of the wild and give him a home, and then little fella falls in his house and they kill the gorilla.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and there's a lot of talk about that. And, you know, there may be a video that I haven't seen, but all the video that I saw showed the gorilla trying to get the little boy out of the water. And to me, that would be the same thing that the gorilla would have done with one of one of their children. You know, uh, I saw no overt act of that gorilla trying to kill that child.
4: Well, you know, it's it, it, I mean, but to, to Jerry's point, it's still a wild animal. I yeah. look at it as a parent. You're at a zoo, right? You're at a zoo, and you're gonna let your kid. I mean, I, I'm sorry. I, of course, I was raised different than most people. I right. My mother wouldn't have me falling over in there with an eight for nothing. I guess she was too busy taking selfies and, you know, texting somebody. Next thing sure. you know, he's with an eight.
3: Yeah, our mothers would have jumped in, drug us out, made sure we were all right, and then beat the crap out of us. Yeah.
4: You know, it's, yeah, mother, it would have taken, <laughs> Now, my mother would have taken a poke at that gorilla before she left. <laughs> but.
1: Honestly, you know, it, it was the parents' fault, no bottom of line. Of course
4: it
2: was, Jay. Of course it was. I mean,
4: come on.
2: Well, the thing about the, the – and it, it is a tragic thing that the, the child lost his life in, in Disney, but they have signs posted there for a reason, you know. And the, yeah, it, keep what I understand the ball, I is it. the father and the son, the child, were wading in the water. I don't know if it was a case where the, the, the little boy got away and was in the water and the, the father he he went in there after his, him. Or? He was up to his knees waiting.
3: What I called my been? daughter yesterday. My daughter is, uh, Lisa's 36 years old. Well, she's 38 this year. And she, her and her family are members of the of the vacation club. They pay they pay each month through the years, and then, and then once it's March, April, whatever it is, they have a an eight day or seven day vacation down there. That's totally paid for, and they stay at different, uh, uh, the Disney rotates so that they stay at a different venue there on the property every year. They have they have tickets to the uh to the park. I mean, it's just a, it's a vacation club, and they love it. It's something they really enjoy, and they go every year. I called her yesterday, or day before, because I knew she was probably very down, and and she told me she said, "Dad, she said, she said, yeah, I'm upset, and she said, I hate it for the, you know, I don't understand the, the, the grief that these parents must be going through." She said, "But Dad, there are signs every twenty feet. Yep. No swimming. Stay out of the water. You know. I just and she said, she don't understand how the kid got in there to begin with. You know." And and I understand the a two year old. Sometimes they kind of get away from you, but you got to notice your kids in a place you ain't supposed to be. In. And 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 that that does not discount the grief. And I can't imagine what they're going through. Don't want to know what they're going through.
4: Yeah. The thing about it is, getting that place inside the whole complex?
3: Yeah.
2: Oh yeah. Why are there alligators in there?
3: It's a huge man-made lagoon,
2: but. It's fed, it's fed off of a waterway that's that's into an open open. Uh, yeah, I don't know I if it's the ocean or, anything, but it's it's open to, you know, water where
4: alligators are. Well, I understand that. What, what it looks like to me they would patrol that thing to make sure there's no alligators in there. I mean, I just don't get that in a, in a. Theme park, you got live alligators running around. I, I have a problem with that too. <laughs> well, that's,
2: that's that's Florida. You can't go fifteen feet in Florida without you. If it rains hard enough, there's a puddle. There's bound to be an alligator in it sooner or later. <laughs> but I, I, I <laughs> you know.
1: And another problem there is, as was mentioned earlier in this conversation, there there's so many animatrons or, you know, not real animals that you're you're liable to. And they make them look so real now that you're you're liable to think it's just part of the act, you know.
2: Well, absolutely. I'm sure at some point uh, there was a Peter Pan ride or something that had an alligator as part of the ride, you know, part of the show, because that's part of the, the Peter Pan story. Right. But, um, I don't know. It's a, it's a shame.
4: It's the most. You you can't even believe it. You you you. Not this day. I mean. I don't
3: know. Well, I
4: just I hate
3: it. I really. I I can't. I can't imagine. I cannot imagine what the what those parents are going through. I just. No sir. You know. uh.
4: Well, you, you know, they're, they're they're probably going through
2: enough of uh, blaming themselves for, for it happening as well, you know, as long yeah. And, and uh, I
3: know this is this is just, uh, and I can't help but feel this way, they're going to wind up suing Disney, you know that. Oh,
2: yeah.
3: And Disney's going to settle out of court because, because they don't the want people. the publicity. They want well, this to go away. Settle. So they will settle it for who knows what. And, and right. I know money can't replay. I mean, but it's just—I don't know. I, I go right back to if the kid wasn't in the water, it wouldn't have happened.
1: Right. That's why those signs
4: are up every five feet, you know, because they're yeah. trying to protect themselves. Well, they'll leave there with some money. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They don't want. They don't. They—they're not gonna let that go to court. They may not have a leg to stand on if they did. No. I don't know. But gentlemen, I'm gonna let y'all have it. I got an early morning in the morning. All right, Jerry. Jerry, certainly good to hear from you this week. Yes, sir. Y'all be good here.
2: All right, hey, Jerry, all right. be careful. Good night, man. Jerry.
4: I'm glad you got back safe uh Bobby. Thanks, man. Y'all be good. Bye bye.
2: Good night.
4: Bye.
2: Yeah, my my uh you're talking about wild animals, my excursion into the uh the wild west Is The the year I went out and went to Moose, Wyoming, Uh, we flew into Jackson Hole, a little puddle jumper out of Salt Lake City. We flew into Jackson Hole and then uh, rented a car and drove to Moose, which was probably a two-hour drive away. I think Utah, out in the middle of nowhere. And I was so fascinated the first time I saw Buffalo. By the third day, I'm like, get these things out of the road. I'm not trying to get by here. You know, the the day, the the times of me stopping and taking pictures of them was over with. But uh, uh, you just, you know, you're fascinated by stuff like that. The first time I saw a live moose, oh man, you just don't realize how big those things are. Ronnie Garvin told a story when he and uh, he and Terry were working North Bay, and Bob Kelly was up there as a referee. He and Kelly got to be close, and and he decided to take Kelly moose hunting. Well, they really weren't going moose hunting; they were going hunting, but they happened to come across a, uh, a female moose, and all Kelly had was a twenty-two, and he roared up, and pulled that rifle up to shoot that moose, and Ronnie said, "What are you doing? He said, I'm going to shoot it." He said, "All you're going to do is make her mad." <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but I cannot imagine. Those people up there, there, they wake up and the moose is is in their swimming pool. (coughs) Mm. It's like Mac McMurray and his bears. I just can't imagine.
3: Took the pictures up. Well, the thing scares me about Mac McMurray is he feeds those bears. Yeah. You know, and that, that. he he's talked about they walked up on his porch and you know looked at the window and at the door. Yeah, you know, I mean it's <laughs> it's the, the thing they said. One of the they had a uh, a wildlife guy on one of the channels yesterday, and he said the thing with alligators is he said people will feed them. He said not only will they feed them, he said when you feed an alligator, it becomes. I think the word he used was habituated or. Ab- appetized. He said they lose their fear of humans Yes And he said so they keep getting closer and closer And he said then you got these idiots That want to wade out in the water And mm-hmm. take a selfie You know And he said the thing about uh, This thing is You know people forget For 40 yards an alligator Is as fast as a racehorse. horse mm-hmm. you know? so They said so for 120 feet This thing can outrun you I mean, it's just—I I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, the whole thing's crazy to me. Uh, I'm really, again, I'm, I'm, I don't understand their grief, but I, I just, uh, man, I think the world's going crazy.
1: Oh yeah. Yep. When a when a soldier is told to not wear your uniform when you're not on duty because there's more danger in wearing the uniform than not. Uh, that tells you where we are today.
2: Yes, sir. Yes, sir, exactly. That's a new one on me. I hadn't heard that. Where did that happen? Oh, yes.
1: Oh, yes. Uh, you know, that's why uh, most of your posts stop putting decals on, on the vehicles because they could be spotted as a military vehicle both by the soldier and by their families, and uh, you know there's there's new ways now uh, with ID cards that uh, are, are in this are in the system. But uh, you look at most of the vehicles that used to have the uh, you know at Fort Mac and Fort Gilliam and in other places uh, that had the uh, the stickers yeah, that parents, were on, 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 did, on top of the my window. My parents, my my father
2: being retired military, they they had. Uh where they could get on the Coast Guard base. They had them on the front bumper of the car.
1: Now it's just the ID cards, and they stop them. And uh, now there's still some that still have them, but uh, but it's no longer standard. And it's because of the fear of someone knowing that you're pro-military or a military family, not only to cause harm to you, but also to kidnap you. Uh, And uh, that's a very big terrorist threat right now in the United States. But soldiers are told... You know, they're proud of the uniforms, uh, particularly the guys that uh, that I I work with in the, in the state defense force, which is part of the Georgia DOBD. Uh, if you're not uh, doing something official, don't wear your uniform because uh, it's too much of a chance of
2: the terrorist uh, uh, taking it out on you. Hmm. You'd think it'd be a deterrent, wouldn't you? Yes, you would.
1: But it's not the case. And if you've got 20 of 30 together, which you think is enough people to, you know, take care of a situation, no, that just makes for a bigger pot for them to destroy. Hmm. That's what the world's come to.
3: Getting back, getting back to the subject <laughs> that we started out with, Mike, yes, out, of, out of all the years down in Mobile, what was the biggest brother team, legitimate brother team? Oh, I guess it would be the Fields. I guess i oh, yeah. my own question. They had to be – I mean, they were just over-tremendous down there, weren't they?
2: Yeah. Um, And uh, besides them, a brother team that were not legitimate brothers was probably Ken and Chris Lucas, which was Ken Lucas and Paul Christie. Um, But, yeah, the Fields Fields family, even before Lee bought the territory and could, you know, push his brother, they were were the the top thing. It started out – Lee and Don, and then uh, then Bobby came along, and then uh, it was Bobby and Don. And of course, Bobby and Don worked uh, all over the place. They worked in Tennessee, and they they uh, did spots in uh, – or Lee and Bobby did spots in Georgia, but I don't know if Don did. But then Don was in a uh, a car accident in 1963 that ended his active career. He still was involved with the promotion end of it, but uh, – um, and then Bobby and Lee teamed, but, uh, yeah – they were they were definitely I mean the Fields family owned that territory in more ways than one. Uh they were Lee Fields was what to, to the Mobile Territory, even after he retired and was still the promoter there, people knew he was involved. He was to that territory what Bruno San Martino was to, to New York. Wow. I had um, no idea. Oh yeah. When when they did the the deal uh in uh seventy one when Bobby Shane first came into the territory and uh you know Bobby did the same thing in, in Georgia when he worked heel in Georgia. He refused to work on T V because, you know, people had to pay to see the king of wrestling and all this stuff and they did a, a running thing with uh, you know, antagonism between he and Lee Fields and then finally uh uh one Saturday night uh he slapped Lee on T V. And uh, that was so was so real that uh, a fourteen year old Ricky Fields, who was not smart to the business, came running out of the back and uh, jumped on Bobby Shane and bit him on his leg. Wow! <laughs> I'm sure Bobby Shane was telling Lee back in the back, smarten your kid up, smarten him up. <laughs> but that they had a match between the two of them uh Lee came out of retirement. Lee had not wrestled uh been an active wrestler since uh nineteen sixty nine at that point so the two years and uh sold out the municipal auditorium ten thousand people wow sold it out and uh you would think you know uh, Lee being the promoter and all that stuff and everything that they would push where he would go over on Shane well, he didn't he lost the match to Shane of course. You know, he he gave Shane a beating, and Shane was all bloody and everything. And but but they worked the deal where uh, Lee just you know being laid off for so long um, ran out of gas, and 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 Shane pinned him. Well, they worked that program for the remainder, uh, uh, not the remainder of the year, but probably another good six months, because Shane was never in Mobile full time. He was in Tampa full time, and he would come up and work. You know, he'd work. A handful of matches, me gone, you know, two or three weeks, come back. But uh, they uh, they had two or three rematches between the two of them, and, you know, or they'd send somebody up, some sort of bounty hunter up that Shane had supposedly sent up and said Lee had to beat him and all this stuff. So, anyway, they worked it out for, you know, a good uh, four or five months before Lee finally got his, his match against Shane again and beat him clean. Um, and then that was that was the last of Lee working until '77. They tried to do something similar to that, uh, which with Lee coming out of, of retirement uh, for a series of matches against uh, Billy Spears. And how by that would time, have been it,
1: at it, that, how old uh, would he have been at that point, Mike?
2: Uh, let's see. Lee started in 1949, and he was. Probably 22, 23. So you're looking at uh, nearly 30 years later. So he was probably uh, 50, 51 by the time he did the thing with Spears. Now, uh, when when he did the deal with Shane, he was probably in his mid 40s. But uh, and,
1: and between too. the two, he had not, he had not worked.
2: No he had not worked full time in the territory as, as you know a full time worker since sixty nine now he bought the territory from buddy fuller in january of sixty and he pretty much didn't work then but but he would- you know he came back before the the year was over with he was back working full time and uh like i said sixty nine was was the last time that that uh he worked pretty much full time well, it might have been Maryland that might have been sixty eight I think he and he and Bobby did a a deal with uh, Bowman and Turner when they were the interns, and that may have been the last hurrah for them as a team now Bobby kept going Bobby kept working even after the the Gulf Coast territory was closed. He worked up until seventy nine uh before he quit but uh but they were definitely you know and of course Kelly Kelly Bob Kelly was a, as I called him a branch field, so he <laughs> fell right in line there you know he was always looked at as as Lee's protege because that's how they worked it in Louisiana and then uh, when when Lee was making his comeback with Shane Kelly took over as the the old term what they used to call the matchmaker you know uh-huh. so he was he was like the figurehead promoter of course, Kelly was booking all that anyway. But uh, yeah, that was that was the the, the heyday of of Mo, the mobile territory. After seventy two, it kind of it kind of started going downhill, and eventually, it uh, once they lost TV in seventy six, it was it was pretty much over. It was on life support for the next two years. Well, when
1: they lost TV, then wasn't there still TV in Dothan and some other places?
2: Um. Well, yeah, but uh, and they well they still had TV in mobile and mobile in Pensacola, but what they did they weren't taping at the studio Channel Three studio in Pensacola anymore. they were filming the mobile house shows and splitting it up, you know, if they had six matches on the card they they'd show they'd split it into two different television programs and right. show them two weeks of you know two weeks in a row, but the production was so horrible. Right. I mean, it was so dim. And it's a shame because that's the bulk of what exists of the Mobile territory is that that film from 76 where they were taping the Mobile house shows. I mean, the matches were good, but, you know, the, the production quality was so horrible. Right. Um, and Jack Bitterman, who they had uh, doing their commentary, he had been their commentary when they were live in the 50s and 60s, but by that time, Jack had had a couple of strokes and everything, and he was not, uh, you know, not on his game like he was, you know, 10, 15 years earlier. So, um, but, yeah, they they taped Dothan. Well, they, they only did that in 76. Dothan was always live <laughs> up until 77, and, and from 1977, uh, basically, the only television they did, they taped the went from doing the live uh, show in Dothan to taping it and bicycling that tape.
3: When I was there in seventy seven, we taped it. We taped it in the afternoon, right, and then they showed it back that night, right. Because I would leave, I would leave TV, go over to Morrison's at the mall, and then I'd walk up to Sears to their TV department and watch the show,
2: right. And then they would take that show that. that you take Bobby, and the the next week would show it in the Mobile market, and just cut interviews based, you know, to fit in. To
3: fill in, yeah,
2: same thing we for, did. It, for yeah. the what was upcoming, the, the the angles that were were running that week in Mobile. Right. But yeah, that uh, that territory from just it just slowly went downhill. I mean, uh, I I, I always pinpointed to the the time frame of 1973 when they moved from the big auditorium into the expo hall and uh i mean they still do decent crowds but you know going from that huge arena and you know right that would be like going from the omni to uh going you know having your your big atlanta cards there and then moving to the j and j sports center that's about equivalent of it. I mean Bobby can tell you he thought he was working in that big building and saw the yeah. parking lot full and what it was was a was a high school graduation, wasn't it, Bobby? Yep. <laughs> yep. Then they told, told him, no, to he you're working in the door. little building huh. next door. Mm.
1: Uh Bobby, speaking of uh, the youngster there, uh the coming to ringside there at the, the you know, trying to help out. Do you remember the deal and you may have talked about it before when Tom Ernesto Junior was at ringside and I forget exactly what happened but somebody uh did a thing with yeah, him Jody, did
3: they did. Yeah, actually yeah, what happened we were uh Jody was working with Tommy Sigler in a cage and uh, Charlie Smith was a referee. And uh some guy I was I was actually I was actually sitting at the door of the cage. I had locked the cage when they went in and I was sitting there, and Tom was to my left. He was sitting down there with me. And uh, when uh, I seen the guy come, he come out of the first balcony to auditorium, I seen him go over the wall and hang and drop down. You remember you remember to auditorium how the floor slanted down toward the stage? And oh, yeah. Up near the front, the wall wasn't as tall. And as it come around, he got taller. Well, the guy, the guy dropped down from about, oh, I don't know, maybe halfway between that front section of the wall. He dropped two or three feet. And I seen him when he did it, and that's what caught my eye. And I seen him, and he started toward the ring. And I, and I really I didn't know he was coming. i just seen him running. And uh, I stood up. And when I stood up, I was kind of up against the cage. And when the guy come around the corner, he did not hit me with his fist. He elbowed me in the chest. And when he elbowed me, I, I fell. And, of course, you know how that floor was. It was slick. I slid about two foot on my butt. And the guy grabbed the cage door, and he pulled it. It was a chain-link fence, and even with the lock in it, when he pulled on it, it just twisted the, the latch and opened up. And uh, he he bailed in the ring and went after Jody, and, and he didn't try to hit him. He uh, I screamed at,
0: at whoever
3: was in the ring, hey, here, you got a mark in the ring. and And the guy did not try to hit Jody. He tried to tackle him. And that would be like trying to tackle a fire plug on the street <laughs> corner. And uh when he hit Jody, Jody just backed into the corner while well, the guy was pushing like he was trying to tackle him. Jody's up against the turnbuckle. He can't go anywhere. And uh needless to say, uh, uh Jody uh Jody carved him up pretty good. The guy was the guy was in a bad way when they finally got him out of the ring and his eyeball was laying out on his cheek and and uh the cops were dragging him off and the, <clears throat> the police officer Ferguson who uh, uh me and Smitty was talking about the other day he was uh, Ferguson was about six seven six eight big tall police officer and uh, as he's dragging the guy out of the ring the guy- there was a guy standing in a chair on the front row, and the guy standing in the chair wasn't as tall as Ferguson and he said uh he told uh he- t- he hollered at Ferguson he said, won't you let him go and he poked at Ferguson when he did Ferguson grabbed him by the shirt snatched him out of the chair and drug him by his shirt to the stage, muttering, mm-hmm. You're going to jail too as they got him to the stage So but yeah, that was the deal that happened that night. The guy got jumped in the ring. That would have been in seventy three, I guess.
1: But I mean can you imagine if you were gonna to try to go after somebody like that to go into a cage and do that? You know?
3: Oh, oh, but I you know, people don't think I would have to think happen. alcohol
2: was involved in that somehow. Yeah,
3: yeah. I, yeah at least at least uh, a few uh you know, I mean, just
2: you
3: know, I I had you know, of course, we all we had guys come in the ring, you know, periodically. People would, uh, you know, uh, the only time I was ever threatened to be sued was was it happened in Athens, Georgia. Guy jumped in the ring, wrestling too, and Tanaka were wrestling, and when the guy come in the ring, I seen him and I hollered at Tanaka. I said, Charlie, you got a guy you got a mark behind you. Well, Charlie turned around and started these karate poses. And, uh, the guy run right by him and wrestling two's laying on the mat. Well, there wasn't nobody left but me. So I figured he was coming after me and I just started, uh, I, I kind of backpedaled and I said, look, bud, you really don't want to do this and kind of was shying away from him. And he, I guess he thought I was backpedaling afraid of him. And he kept coming and he bowed up. And when he did, I kicked him in his private parts. And when he bent over, I punted him like a football and, uh, yeah, he tried, to, he tried to sue me, but when the lawyer found out he jumped in the ring, it went away.
1: But, you know, that, uh, that, that story we touched on last week, I think Dennis mentioned it, uh, and uh, a fan, Patricia Ann Crow, 50, this is from the Wrestling Observer, 50 years old, was arrested on June 4th after pulling a gun on a heel wrestler at a show in Ringo, Georgia. Crow was charged with aggravated assault and reckless conduct and held until 6, June 6th 6, when she was released on $4,000 bond. The American Wrestling Federation was putting on a show at their arena when Crow allegedly uh, jumped into the ring and pulled a handgun on wrestler Paul Lee. Lee was wrestling Iron Man and was hitting him with a chair after uh, trying man, tying Man to the ropes when Crow came into the ring. I had him tied up and was beating on him, and this lady jumps with a knife, cuts him loose, and then pulls a loaded gun on me, said Lee to the Catoosa County News. She had that thing loaded with one of the cha- one in the chamber and the safety off. All it would have taken was for her to get shaky with that thing, and it could have been fired. Crow also pointed the gun at Robbie Rood, who was on the stage as the commissioner of the motion. Lee noted that the woman was a regular at the show. Now, this wasn't somebody that just, you know, one, a one-timer. And had seen angles like that at the time. Police officer Chris Falk said Crow admitted pulling the gun on him because of the way he had okay. yelled at her. Uh, she said that Lee was talking mean to her, and she got mad, and her temper got the best of her. Uh, Lee's line apparently was, "Sir, your tooth, uh, sit your toothless self back down." Lee said she was unhappy. The bond was only Lee was unhappy. The bond was only four thousand dollars, and she was. Released so quickly, there were 160 fans at the show, and they say they're going to install metal detectors now. Okay. Well,
2: if he's if he's smart, he'll have that happen in every town he he does now.
1: That's right. Put it on the payroll.
2: Hmm.
0: Well, you know, uh,
3: I read that on the internet. Somebody sent it to me, and I thought, you know. There's no telling how many guns we performed in front of a week. Oh, yeah. Knives, uh, you know, who knows what else. Uh, I got, you know, here again, uh, you know, don't know, but I refereed one night in Lakewood Park here in Atlanta at the fairgrounds, and uh, you you had to... uh, when when you come out of the ring, you walk back and you went up two or three little steps and went behind the curtain that was on stage. There, you went behind the curtain, and the dressing rooms were on either side of the stage. And uh, I I had just went through that curtain one night. We'd worked some kind of deal with Thunderbolt and somebody, and I went around behind the curtain and I heard a popping sound. So I turned around to see what it was, and when I looked, when I put my head out the curtain, there was a hand went into my face and just shoved me, and it knocked me down. And I got up by ready to fight, and as I stood up, that curtain peeled back, and it was that big cop I was telling you about Ferguson. Uh, of course, I didn't want to fight no more when I seen who it was, and I said, what's the deal? He said, I think this was meant for you, maybe, and I peeped around the curtain, and there's a guy laying at the bottom of the steps that had been shot. Oh. So, don't know. I mean, I, I'm not going you know, to say I had that much heat, and they were after I don't know. But I just, you know, you, there's no telling well. how many guns were around those arenas that we never saw
1: that's true and and also to think about the fact that that if they were there that if certain matches had turned out differently if the you know if if, if the end had been different than what they were how how things could have gone sour if someone was not happy with the outcome
2: mm. well i was I was in mobile and was uh they had had a deal, they had a cage match between Moola and uh Mae Weston who was working as Ma Bass. Um, and somebody fired a gun there and they ended that match quick and surrounded Ma and got her out of there. She drew that much heat. And you know, I don't know how many times Tony Gonzalez, one of the one of the mysterious medics, how many times he got stabbed in Mobile. Jeez. I mean, it was just. Well, Bobby's told the story on here before that uh, Rocket was antagonizing a guy in one of the towns. The guy was sitting on a pistol.
3: That was in Carrollton. He pulled it out of his pocket. I seen it. I jumped out on the floor and told Rocket to get back in the ring. And uh, I, you know, it was an older fella had overalls on. He's a grandpa. It had his son there, grandson there with him. And uh, you know, I sent the. Uh, I sent the uh you know, the guy that was in jar of security over at Carrollton, I sent him out there. I told him, I said, Hey man, get the gun said, Oh, it ain't a gun, it was a pocket and I said, Go back. He was sitting on it, little pearl handled pistol. And you know, you think about those places like Carrollton and Griffin and, and uh uh any any small mm-hmm. any small city in the uh you know, that we went to on a regular basis, there's no telling what was sitting out there.
1: Yeah, and the police knew those people. You know, they were buddies with them, and uh, they were going to do everything they could probably to, uh, you know, look the other way.
3: And we didn't, you know, and the thing is, we never thought about it. Mm -hmm. You know, when I'd go to the ring for a main event, and I knew that for whatever reason this was going to be a hot deal, you know, it was going to be, you know, just, uh, you know, I knew it was going to be bad. Mm-hmm. But never, not one time, did I ever think to myself, "I'm not going to do this because I'm afraid of what might happen." Right. We just went and did it, and, and sure. I, you know, they they always we were always encouraged. We were told I was never told point blank not to do it, but I was always told, you know, to come out of the babyface dressing room, and I did. But most of the time, I dressed with the heels because I knew at the end of the night, if something was hot that I was going to roll out of the ring behind those heels and I was going to follow them to the dressing room, number one, to watch their back, and number two, I was smart enough to know that's where the most security was going to be.
1: Sure.
3: So, uh, and once I got there, I could take my shower and leave. You know, by that time, the building was pretty well empty. But, yeah, it was, uh, there's just no telling. I mean, it was,
1: Yeah. I I, uh, that
3: lady... With a gun, that's kind of over the board, but
1: you're not kidding. I played in a lot of places, you know, a lot of them were FWs and American Legions and things like that, and and most of the people were really really good people, but you'd have a few there that uh, uh, you know that were uh, really hard asses, and after they'd been drinking for a while, you didn't know what they were going to do, and a few of them would uh, you know uh, try to make passes at my wife and things like that, but it, it was pretty much like you said, you were doing your job and you didn't have time to think about it. Most of the time I thought about it was after the night was over, I'd get the payoff from whoever was in charge, and uh, you know I'd have all the money, and then I'd pay the band members and The optimum time for somebody to try something for us, particularly where the money was concerned, was at that point. you know we were loading up, and I was making the payoff and uh, I was always you know I was always packing at that point because I didn't know. Uh, you know, what might happen. I considered that to be the optimum time of the night for somebody to try to cause us problem.
2: Right. You know, that was the only time when I was working with the circus, that was the only time I was ever nervous was when I would uh, collect and uh, close out a uh, a ticket outlet that I had set up because it was mm-hmm. always after business hours, once they'd closed. And, uh, you know, I, I'd you know, count all the money that they'd taken in for selling tickets for us and I'd give them their cut. And there were times that I'd come out of, you know, some place in, you know, that's in a strip mall or or as a uh a a convenience store, whatever it is, with five, six thousand dollars in cash. Right. And uh first thing I did was uh, I'd hit make a beeline for my car and, and lock it in the trunk. And, I, you know, make sure I was watching, make sure nobody was ever around me. I never heard of any any of us being robbed. Um, <coughs> you know, now robbing. that we publicized it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all right. They, they're not having marketing Let's directors anymore. Let's go so get getting know, some marketing right. directors, yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, and then they're getting, once I got to my hotel, getting it out of my car and getting it into my room with me. And that money never left my side because the next morning I turned it in. It never left me. It was never out of my sight because I I would turn it in at 10 o'clock the next morning. But I had to be on the lot at 6, so that was four hours that I had to hang around my car because (coughs) that's where the money was. That was the only time because I had never, you know, uh, even when I was in retail, you know, I would count down cashiers and stuff at the end of the night or whatever, and I'd lock that stuff in a safe, so, you know. Overnight, so I never had to worry about actually being responsible for that. But uh, it's that was the only time I can imagine what you guys had, had to deal with. Uh, you know, taking care of a town for one of these promotions and stuff like that. Like Bobby, at the time he was stopped with the mask and the gun and a, <coughs> and a suitcase full of money.
1: Yeah, somebody was I mean, looking it,
2: out for Bobby uh, that night. You we know, are. You ain't kidding. We
3: were, uh, you know, that was a thing, and we would come home, like especially Saturday night when we wasn't running Sunday. We would, we would, uh, you know, it was generally me and Ronnie West, or most of the time it was being Ronnie. We, we'd be in the towns on Saturday night, and we'd get the money. And a lot of times, you know, Mister Mister uh, Butler over in Carrollton, he just always put it in a brown paper sack. Well, he did his own checking up. We didn't do any checking up. You know, we had done business with Mister Butler so long, we were totally, totally at ease with him. So there was never any go, let's go to the box office and count the money. He did the split. He did everything, and he would bring me the money in a paper sack or Ronnie. And then we had to take it home with us, keep it all day Sunday. And, you know, back then it was our only day off, so we didn't want to sit in the house all day, so you'd put it in a freezer or under your mattress or wherever you wanted to put it. And then Monday, go to the office with it. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was just uh, it was what we did. But, uh, you know, I thought about it sometimes, but – but uh you just uh it was just something we did,
2: hmm. well, Jay, did you ever play behind chicken wire? uh
1: no, sometimes I wished it was there uh, <laughs> I'll tell you the worst the worst things that we ever played, and you would have thought they would have been you know really really comfortable but uh I'd play we'd play private jobs, and one of the most common private jobs would be the after <laughs> wedding, you know uh everybody after the wedding and uh it was this was back before I had my own band. this was back when I was you know playing with other guys in the seventies uh late sixties through the uh, middle middle eighties and it wasn't uncommon for somebody to say the wrong thing you know after they'd start drinking after the after party after the after the wedding first thing you know a fist fight would break out. And, uh, you know, the the uh, you, you're you always told, doing that kind of job, to keep playing. Uh, you know, and that would help bring things down. Well, what you had to worry about was who they were going to knock into your equipment. And yeah. the guy that really had to be careful was the drummer, because he couldn't move his stuff like anybody else could. And uh, we'd always protect him the best we could. But the jobs that you would think would be the worst, you know, playing these little... Uh, little places, and uh, folks were, you know, coming in on motorcycles and things like that. For the most part, they all knew each other, and uh, they knew what they were capable of, and, and uh, you know, they were just there to party and have a good time, but these places where you'd have the weddings, and somebody would say the wrong thing, or some guy that had been an old boyfriend, and first thing you know, the place was turned upside down, and here was the cops
2: being called. Well, you you know B.B. B. King, his guitar was famously called Lucille. Have you ever heard Lucille, of the story yeah. of how he named his guitar Lucille?
1: Uh, I probably heard it, but it's not coming
2: to me right off. He was he was playing in a in a little roadhouse in Twist, Arkansas. If you can, I can't imagine where that is, but uh, it was uh, one of those places where they um, they heated the place with a fifty-five gallon drum with a fire going in it. And uh, he was on stage, and they were playing and everything, and and two guys got to fighting and knocked over that barrel. And, of course, the the building, you know, caught on fire, and so he ran out and uh, forgot his guitar. So he ran back in to get his guitar, and he said he found out the next day that the the, the two guys were fighting over a woman named Lucille. He Uh said from then on he named every guitar he ever had named Named it Lucille So he'd remember It'd remind him Never to do anything That so stupid again As to run back Into a burning building You know
1: Probably For most uh, Journeyman type musicians uh, You know Your your audio equipment Was uh, pretty expensive And you'd have Whatever you needed For two or three Different sized buildings You'd play in But the thing That probably Cost the most Was your guitar And, uh, you know, vintage Gibsons and Fenders now are very, very expensive. And even back when they were new, they were expensive. Uh, But I can remember a guy one night who had a Gretsch that was, uh, you know, uh, they were popular at the time. And uh, he got so drunk that he forgot his guitar. Well, he went back the next day. It was a private party. And it was there. And he was very thankful. And I played with another guy doing the same thing. And it was in a club. And next day, nobody had any idea where his guitar was. But, uh, you know, if, if you're going to watch anything other than your personal self, uh, is uh, watch your uh, equipment.
2: Bobby, did you ever referee a match where where a fight broke out in the crowd and the match had to stay, got more attention than the match did?
3: Oh, I, yeah, I mean, I, I've seen things happen out in the crowd where people quit watching us and started watching them. Yep. But, you know, back then, back then, you know, you buzz the guys and somebody would holler, grab a hold, and then we'd just go down to the mat and we'd watch whatever was going on <laughs> out in the crowd like everybody else did. But we never stopped the match. Right. Yeah, I, I, got, remember that. I got a bunch of these uh, uh, these uh, country family reunion videos. I love the old <laughs> country music and listen to these guys tell stories. Because it doesn't matter if you're into country music or rock and roll or whatever. If you're on the road, you got stories. And I yep. love these guys telling stories, but this you'll you'll love this one. They got a series out about the guys that played these Texas roadhouses and honky tonks, oh and they were talking God. about behind the chicken wire different things. But this one guy was telling a story about playing in a VFW club, and he said, you know, they were always leery because he said you were over in the corner, and I'm sure you're this is this is your life. But he said you're over in the corner, and there's no stage. You're on the same level with everybody else. And you're over there playing while everybody else is getting drunk. And he said, he said this guy staggered up to him and said, uh, "Can you play uh, uh, oh, what I just went brain dead." He asked him to play something, uh, 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 uh the right, Tennessee Walls. Okay. Can you play the Tennessee Waltz?
0: Yeah.
3: And he said, of course they kind of knew that, so they played through it. I was dancing with my darling to the Tennessee Walls. He said a few minutes later, this guy come back and he's a little drunker. And he says, could you play the San Antonio waltz? And he said, so he waited a minute, and he said they started playing. He said they played the exact same tune and played, I was dancing with my darling to the San Antonio waltz. <laughs> right. And he said, a few minutes later, the guy comes back, he's even drunker, and he goes, can you play the Chattanooga waltz?
0: <laughs>
3: he said ten times. The guy came back, and he said, he played the same song, played the Tennessee waltz and just changed the words. And he said that night they were loading their equipment up, and he said, the guy could barely walk, and he said he heard him tell his buddy, he said, you can't fool that SOB on the wall. He knows them
1: all. <laughs> uh Talking about playing in the in the corner like that, you know, VFWs, American Legions, if you belonged in the in, in a certain time, that's you know that's where you could get alcohol on Sunday if you weren't military, you know, in a, in a military base and things like that. And they'd have the bar and they'd have a little place over in the corner. And yes, sometimes you would uh, you, you would work there, and that would be specifically for the members. Uh, most of the places that I played were what they for the VFW American Legion would put on an open open dance and there you would have a big hall and they would yes have a have a stage and uh, I played most of our jobs like that but there was an American Legion down here in Jonesboro uh that uh, you you uh did did not have a stage and that was in the bar area and uh I played we played there a few times and yeah it was a pretty different atmosphere when you were in close close quarters with uh, folks uh that were having a good time, and then some of, them, some of them
2: weren't having such a good time anymore. And I know we've, we've made the comparison on this show before to, between the wrestling, music, wrestling business and the music business, and like Bobby said, it doesn't matter if you, if you ever spend any kind of time on the road. I still, to this day, cannot hear Turn the Page by Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band without thinking of running up and down the roads in the wrestling business, because it just, it just applies to that and the music business. Yep. Well, on that note, I think we're going to wrap it up. Uh, good to have you home, Bobby and Smitty and uh, Randy. Glad you guys had a good time, but glad you're home. I'm glad to be glad back. I'm
1: glad you got, a, glad you say, got a little. Huh? Uh, glad you got a little nap tonight, Mike. Try to, yeah, try well. to start it a little earlier next week.
2: Hey, man! After you know, I've been doing this show almost six years. I got I, you know. <laughs> other than times I've been in the hospital, I've never been late. <laughs> this is my this is my Buzz Sawyer night, okay. All right. Well, it's, fortunately,
1: I had you on speed dial there, so I was. Yeah. Uh, you know,
2: uh, because I looked at the clock and it was like twenty minutes after seven. I said, well, "Okay, I'm gonna sit here and watch this show, and then uh, everything." And it, it, I'm like Bobby. Once I get settled, and if I had, I've been sitting up in my computer it would have been differently. But well, I'm settled yeah. in my. Uh, my recliner and i had the uh travel channel on and i just dozed right on off
1: well it got down to about a minute you know before the show started and fortunately bobby's number came up because i was afraid i was going to be talking to the wall there
2: for a minute uh, (laughs) well they they, i i don't know if i warned you when i you took over doing the switchboard or not but they they've been known to do that to me a time or two they coordinated to where they both wait to call in uh just as the music is starting to play. Well, have that's me why panty. I try to
1: have one or, one or two things I can talk about, you know, until somebody gets on. Well, somebody you know that, on.
2: but usually, usually Smitty and uh, Gene Bennett are on, so you can always throw them on long enough to, sure. you know, fill in, so. <laughs> until we can all catch up. But, anyway, guys, it's it's been great. It's, been, it's good to have all four of us back on together. It, it right. And, uh, well, We'll get together next week and uh, do it one more time.
3: Sounds good. We'll see you next week, guys.
1: Good night, everybody.
3: Good night.
0: We thank you for listening to this broadcast a production brought to
2: you by the GWH
0: Radio
2: Network. Stay tuned to com for the latest information on upcoming events and more.
0: As
4: always, we thank you for your continued support.